You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Welcome to episode 105 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on sexism and feminism and the teaching profession. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Ilea Grubbs and Kim Feldman. Hi, ladies. Hi. We're going to go around and introduce ourselves quickly before we move into our big discussion about sexism and teaching. So, Kim, why don't you start? Sure. So my name is Kim Feldman, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland, where I work as a teacher educator at UMBC. I'm also a pastor's wife. My husband pastors a small church in Ellicott City, Maryland, and I have two awesome kids uh, that are ages 8 and 11. Thanks so much. Ilea, how about you? My name is Ilea Danner-Grubbs. I live in Trussville, Alabama with my husband, Brian, and our two young children, I got my degree from Wheaton College um, in elementary education and uh, studied Bible and French as well. And uh, I taught in a classroom for six years, but now I homeschool my children and volunteer in ministries at our church. Thanks. I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Sugarland, Texas. We're currently super flooded here. Um, and I live here with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University where I teach online English classes, and uh, I also teach Bible study in my church and spend most of my time with our four kids um, who are all seven or under. So our house is super busy all the time, but it's a lot of fun. Um, Before we move into um, some background things, I wanted to go ahead, listeners, and um, make you aware that this particular episode, as several have before, is actually sponsored. If you've listened to us before, you know that we spend a lot of our time discussing the intersections of our faith and our scholarship, whether we're career scholars or not. And because we live in this intersection, we're really happy to be sponsored by Zondervan's new comfort print NRSV Bible, which is easy to read and has tons of scholarly glosses and resources. So if you'd like to learn more about this new edition and see all of the comfort print options available, then visit nrsv.net. Also, before we move into our first section, which is always knowing, I wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up, listeners, that today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Um, Usually we follow our standard format of knowing, where we talk about background knowledge, and then reading, where we discuss some articles or a film or some kind of text, what we would call a text, and then passing on. But this episode is going to be a little bit different because we have with us in the wonderful Kim Feldman um, a resident expert in the history of education. And so we are going to make today's episode a little bit more like one of our Christian Humanist Profiles episodes and that we are going to cede the floor to Kim um, to give us a lot of background information in our first section, our knowing section, um, and then are going to discuss a lot of that background instead of talking about specific articles, though we will link specific articles that give a lot of the same background information in our show notes. So I just wanted to give you guys a warning that that's what it's going to be like tonight. It's going to be a little bit different. Um, And before we get into all that background, though, um, all that awesome background that Kim is going to give us, we just wanted to go around one more time and um, do another little bit of personal information beyond the basic introductions um, and talk a little bit about what our interest is in this topic and why we are um, really wanting to get into it and talk about it. And I'll start with myself. Um, I, I chose this topic and put it on the schedule because it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. In my case, I'm a college uh, professor, and I've only ever taught at the college level. Um, I was a TA, graduate TA at the University of Georgia when I was a graduate student there. and um, That was my first experience teaching in the classroom, was teaching in the college classroom. And then since that time, um, I have worked in a college library when we were in Kansas. Also, when we were in Kansas, I taught um, there three quarters time. So I was in um, a very small Christian college classroom there and was also in charge of the writing center at our small Kansas college. And all of that was in classroom teaching. Now that we live in Houston, I'm completely online. So I've kind of done 
every different type of college teaching, but that's kind of been the limit of my experience. But in the college classroom, I've definitely noticed some ways that um, I might call it sexist attitudes or, or maybe a milder word might be stereotypes, um, usually on the part of my students, um, but sometimes not. Um, but I've noticed ways that those affect the, the atmosphere in my classroom or the ways that I end up needing to teach, um, ways that my students might treat me that's differently than the way that they would treat a male professor, things like that. So those are some of the things that got me interested in the topic. Um, and uh, so how about you, Kim? How, what about you? What is your, what is, what sparked your interest in this topic? So uh, I began my career teaching for 10 years secondary English in public schools. And at that point, I would not have considered myself a feminist. Uh, I took some time off to take care of my kids and work, started working as an adjunct, started working on my PhD. And my PhD program was an interdisciplinary program that included gender and women's studies. And when we got to that discipline, I remember thinking, well, this one's not going to apply to my research area, which is literacy, teaching, policy, and practice. But as I began reading the work, I realized it was very applicable when it came to um, the silencing of women and the devaluing of women's work. I, I realized how much it applied to my frustrations um, about how policy and practice um, was being enacted in the workplace. And, um, and that makes sense because it's a feminized profession. And so I started digging a little more into the history of how teaching became a feminized profession and what the impact of that has been um, on the prestige of the profession, the pay and all of that. And um, so I'm super excited that we're getting to talk about it um, because when I got into the history, I realized that um, it was very interesting from both a Christian perspective as well as a feminist perspective. Awesome. Thank you so much. Ilya, how about you? Yeah, I am super interested in this now because like I said, I um, taught for six years in a small private Christian school um, and I taught mostly third grade. I taught a little bit of fourth grade. I student taught in second grade, so I, I did, but mostly, you know, lower elementary. And uh, at the time, I also would not have considered myself a feminist and was really kind of oblivious to, um, you know, what even would be considered um, sexism in um, the way that, you know, anybody really was. I really kind of thought, oh, that's not really a thing now. Um, and it was only kind of later, um, after I wasn't working there anymore, that I started to realize that some of the practices there um, that were considered accepted um, were actually very sexist. And um, so it has been interesting for me kind of in hindsight to go back and look through, you know, my time teaching and see how much sexism is not only ingrained in school so much still, but normalized, like, it, it, you know, open and admittedly, it's not something that's said on the slide. It's something that everybody's like, yeah, that's, that's a thing. And we'll, we'll talk more about specifics later, but, um, but that's what really, you know, got me interested in this is the, the idea that like, I didn't even know what I didn't know. And so I think it's important to, you know, get information out and to spend time discussing this and talking about this so that, you know, the next person who goes into a school situation and has the same experiences that I have can can be bold and say, no, that's not legal or that's not ethical or whatever it might be. Thanks so much. And um, Kim mentioned feminization of the profession. And I think for a lot of people who don't know anything about the, the history of education, um, I think particularly for a lot of my students, they might not necessarily realize that um, the teaching profession in America has not always been um, female dominated in terms of numbers um, and the composition of who who's teaching and who's not. So th the first question that we're going to throw to you tonight, Kim, is how did teaching go from being all male, kind of in the more distant past, to becoming a feminized profession, at least in America? Yeah, so in the turn of the century around 1800, um, well, first of all, there were very many, very few women who were working outside the home. They were definitely working. We all know that they were working very hard, um, usually in the trade or in the area that their husbands were working. Um, but they weren't, less than 10% of women were working outside the home. Uh, teaching at that time um, was male-dominated. Uh, school attendance was not compulsory. Uh, there was no consistent education going on across the United States. There, most children, uh, particularly in rural, poor, and urban poor areas had no access to schools. Um, 
if there were schools, it was either a church who was funding it or um, a small community might pool their resources to have um, a, a teacher come in and teach the students in a one-room schoolhouse, usually for less than 12 weeks out of the year, maybe six weeks in the summer, six weeks in the winter. Um, but it was just, it wasn't consistent. And around that time, there was, um, and I, you know, not everybody tells this story of feminization th through the lens of a person, but she's very interesting. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about Catherine Beecher. Uh, she was the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she was the daughter of a famous preacher at that time. Uh, and she was attending a very elite all-girls private school and to get a sense of her um, her personality the school had a revival and she refused to convert um, she had a lot of questions and she was just very independent thinking the school though was very um, preparing the women for domestic life it they were studying art and music and needlepoint and sewing and things that would make them a good wife uh, she did get end up getting engaged to a young math scholar from Yale. He was kind of a prodigy, like one of the youngest ever to achieve to get his PhD. Um, he died suddenly when he was going on a tour of England uh, universities in England during, in a shipwreck. He drowned, and she went into a period of mourning, and she went to work for her dead fiance's family to tutor the younger brother and sister that he had been um, teaching before he had died. And she poured over his journals and his diaries and it kind of reaffirmed her sense that um, she really kind of questioned her Calvinist upbringing and the idea of predestination. And she kind of came to a like work works-based faith um, where she really believed that the key to being a good person and finding favor with God was through education and improving oneself. And she really dedicated herself to studying his notes and taught herself maths and science and things that she was never allowed to learn in her schooling and turned around and taught that to the younger brother and sister. And all of this helped her to kind of, um, these ideas to kind of coalesce for her. She decided she didn't want to marry. She realized that women could learn so much more than that, what they were being taught in school. She uh, realized that women could teach, um, that they could convey these ideas to others. And she started to formulate this idea that maybe teaching could be a way for women to achieve independence and to have an option other than marriage uh, to for their futures. So she used her father's connections to open a school for young women. And she, within a year, had 100 students and she was teaching them Latin and Greek and philosophy and science and math and all these things that she was not never allowed to learn. And it was a very controversial curriculum. There were articles written in the newspaper about how this is going to make women dissatisfied with the um, domestic lifestyle that they were destined for. Um, she also had this very strong philosophy of education that went away from rote memorization that was common at that time period and more towards experiential learning and hands-on learning and field trips. Uh, she was doing things that John Dewey wouldn't write about for another 70 years um, that uh, I was just really intrigued to see that. And then kind of as a side note, I went to look up the progressive education movement and there's this long list of male philosophers of education um, of, you know, she's nowhere to be seen. And I had never heard of her, you know, until um, my PhD work. So um, just really intriguing that she was doing all of this. And she became a well-known lecturer and essayist, like touring the country and talking to women's groups at churches and um, in society about her ideas about education and the education of women and women becoming teachers. But she also realized she had to kind of convince the powers that be that they should hire these young women to become teachers. And it just so happened she, um, at the same time, Horace Mann was um, beginning the common schools movement in Massachusetts. He was a legislator and he pushed for compulsory elementary education and he got funding to fund the schools. And um, he actually met Catherine Beecher and was very intrigued by her. Uh, but she came up with a couple of arguments to convince people to hire women um, that were effective, but 
as you'll see, become problematic um, down the road. One of which was that female teachers would be cheaper. Uh, they suddenly found that they needed this huge workforce because this movement of um, creating compulsory education was moving across all the states and they needed more teachers. And so that was very appealing to have this cheaper workforce. Um, they, and women were willing to work for almost half as much as men. The other argument that she made, she kind of created a bit of a moral panic about the morality of men and whether or not we should trust them with our young children in these one-room schoolhouses. And she um, really pointed to the idea that um, women were a natural fit for teaching. They had these nurturing tendencies and they were had um, more moral, moral virtue than uh, the men who were teaching and they would be better role models for the children. Um, and she even uh, organized this missionary organization called the Board of National Popular Education. She raised the money to send 70 young women out into the most rural, remote, poor areas of the country. Um, these women were filled with a missionary zeal of duty to God and country to go and educate these poor children. Uh, it, the conditions were very poor, and about 21 women died in the first decade of the program. Um, but by 1840, four times as many teachers in the state of Massachusetts were female than male. Um, by 1850, 80% of the teachers in New York were women, um, and that's pretty close to what we um, they saw by the end of the century, which was about 90% of teachers being women at that point. And it's about the same today, around 80% um, are white females. So um, by the end of the century, teaching had fully become feminized. Uh, it was great because it allowed women an option for independence and an option other than marriage. Um, but there were some problems because the profession had sort of become devalued um, in the eyes of the public as becoming as being well just a female profession, and so that's um, some of what we are, we see still with the profession today. Thanks, and um, I you know I found it really really interesting to um, in the the reading that we did do when it was talking about um, different uh, the difference in salary for you know, those early female teachers and the male teachers. I know you mentioned it was like half as much. One thing that I thought was really interesting is one of the articles had mentioned that um, that women um, and men teaching in like the rural South were, were paid more than their northern and, and urban counterparts because there were fewer people qualified to teach um, in those areas. And that while the women and that the women made closer to what the men were making, um, even though obviously it was still not the same. And that was that was fascinating to me, but it makes sense if you think about it, because if you had many more people who were qualified to be teachers, um, if there was a bigger supply, then, you know, people didn't, they didn't have to pay people as much. Whereas if they were in more rural areas, it clearly they were desperate for teachers. <laughs> if, you know, Beecher is, you know, trying to send young women out to the West. And so um, it was just, it was interesting to me that um, how much that, um, that gender pay gap, um, that it seemed to be not just affected by, you know, a kind of, though I think it was affected by a dismissive attitude towards women, but also just some of it was also economics. Like, you know, um, I guess maybe the economics of fewer options for teachers in the South maybe forced people to pay some of those female teachers a little bit more. And I, I just, I found that interesting. Um, was there anything in what we read or anything else, Kim, you wanted to add about the feminization of the profession before we move forward? Either of you guys want to add anything? I could say real quickly um, that's kind of piggybacking on what you just said, that the the profession did feminize more quickly in places where there were more options for work as well. So like if the men had other options, financial options, then they would go and do that. And so it became um, feminized more quickly in the places where there were other economic opportunities. So another big thing that was driving um, or was, I shouldn't say driving, I should say affecting the change in the face of the teaching profession, particularly in the 19th century, was early feminism. So tell us a little bit about the connection between the teaching field and early feminism, Kim. Sure. So um, 
a big part of women going into teaching was that it was a viable option for them to have independence other than um, if, if they didn't want to get married or until they became married. Um, and there are some interesting links between that early feminist movement um, and the profession. Uh, so Susan B. Anthony was a teacher and she was just infuriated. She was outraged by how the uh, fact that she was getting um, so much less pay than her male counterparts. And at one point, she had been teaching for 10 years at a particular school, and the headmaster, who she really admired, he retired, and they put a 19-year-old boy in charge of the school instead of her, even though she had more experience and more education. Uh, they gave him the job because they just never heard of a, a woman being a principal of a co-ed school. Um, and so this like further angered her. Um, she would write home about this. And um, her first public speech was actually related to this. It was at the New York State Teachers Association. 300 of the 500 participants were women at the, at the event, but only men were speaking at the event. And during the second day, the men were on stage uh, lamenting the loss of prestige in the profession. And she asked to speak and they debated for 30 minutes about whether a woman should be allowed to speak. And she, they finally let her, um, let her do it. And I just want to quote something um, that she said in her speech. She said, do you not see that so long as society says a woman is incompetent to be a lawyer, minister, or doctor, but has ample ability to be a teacher, that every man of you who chooses this profession tacitly acknowledges that he has no more brains than a woman. And this, too, is the reason that teaching is a less lucrative position, as here men must compete, compete with the cheap labor of women. And um, her speech emboldened many other women to speak up at the event. And in the end, they voted to advocate for equal pay for the women, realizing that um, that if the women were getting the same pay, that it would um, eliminate that competition for them having to uh, compete with women for the, that would bring down the value of their own work. So... Um, Anthony actually wrote to Elizabeth Cady Stanton about meeting Catherine Beecher. Um, she was very frustrated by Catherine Beecher about, she felt like she was kind of strange and had these antiquated ideas, particularly about the issue of women's, um, the equal pay. Uh, and Stanton was really had no tolerance for Catherine Beecher, but um, they, Stanton and Anthony had very different um, perspectives about teaching. Anthony believed that it was a worthy profession and a great way for women to achieve independence, but she believed that they needed to have equal pay. Uh, whereas Stanton, she she had speeches that she delivered that she would encourage families not to allow their their children, their young, their daughters, to go into the profession. She felt that the that they should be seeking out more prestigious professions such as lawyers and doctors, um, and. This is a uh, an idea that I think carries over today, not just in society, but among feminist circles as well. Um, that that certain certain professions lack prestige, and, and I think that's something that I think we really should explore: is why is there this idea that to achieve their full potential that women need to go into STEM fields. They need to go into engineering. They need to go into being a science or a doctor. They don't need to settle on being a teacher or a nurse. Um, and and why do we devalue those professions? Is is it because the work isn't important to society? Not really. Is it because the, the, the work doesn't involve a high level of education? That's not true. In Maryland, you have to have a master's degree within the first five years of teaching in a public school. Um, it's extremely intellectually rigorous. It's very complex work. Um, and it's, you know, we know that it's important for society. And I think that's true of a lot of women's work, including um, working in the home, uh, homeschooling, all of those jobs are not easy. Um, so, I, you know, this, this idea of why do we see certain work as less than and potentially is it because we associate them with women? Um, but that whole idea of equal pay to decades to achieve in the profession. And ultimately, sadly, it was achieved not by increasing the pay for women, but by decreasing the pay for men. Um, so some interesting connections there to the early feminist movement. Something that I think you're so right about 
that idea of relative degrees of prestige in different fields, I think that absolutely persists today. And that was actually the first thing that I thought when I read that part. Um, something else I think that kind of an attitude that's still hanging around today, I think that was present back then too, is um, something that we read, maybe that MIT article, I can't remember, talked about um, attitudes about pay for teachers um, being impacted by this idea that um, teaching kind of being something that men, really men or women, did before doing other stuff. Like women might do it, you know, until they got married or men might be teachers for a time before they went on to some kind of, you know, other profession like law or, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, and also that it was, you know, kind of thought of as something that, um, you know, just needed to cover living expenses for a young kind of single person or would be supplemental income for somebody, you know, like a woman who was married or something. But all of that, I think, um, I think that those kind of attitudes which were present back then in the 19th century are totally still around today. And I think that's one reason that um, teachers get so frustrated. Um, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, before we move on to talking about the profession today, was there anything else that you, either of you wanted to mention about teaching and early feminism? I think what, um, what you were just saying, um, what both of y'all were saying about in the New Republican, the, the New Republic article, um, it talks about kind of um, this tension in the early feminist, you know, discussion about um, is women's rights centered around women as community leaders, or is it about being autonomous over their own identity? Um, and I really think that that is at the core of what y'all were talking about, because you know, are you considered a feminist if you, you know, stay home and homeschool your children like I do? Well. You know, I would say yes, because that's what I choose to do. That's what I want to do. But a lot of people look at that disdainfully and say, well, you know, you're doing a domestic thing that's not, you know, rising higher in community, you know, prestige or whatever. And I think that that discussion is still very much going on today. Um, and I don't know that it to me, it's a false dichotomy, because I think that you can absolutely um, lead your community while also choosing your own destiny. Um, but it's definitely something that, you know, you see the struggle from first wave all the way to, to present for sure. Absolutely. Um, moving into now then, um, our kind of final big question for this knowing background portion um, for Kim tonight is, how does the feminization of the profession then still impact the profession today? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the, it's really interesting uh how it has persisted, um, that even as women had other options and could go and do other things, that the profession is still, still so heavily female. Um, and part of that, again, I think goes back to that uh, devaluing of women's work, where it's often considered more appropriate for a woman to enter a man's field than for a man to enter a woman's field, um, it, which you know is a whole a whole area that you could talk about. Um, and in the, still today, because of those early situations, the profession still lacks the, pre the prestige and the pay that's commensurate with the level of education and the importance of the work to society. Um, but there's, then there's some other interesting issues still going on as well, um, that administration is still predominantly male, even though the profession is predominantly female and you have to become a teacher first before you go into administration, but women are more likely to stay in the classroom. And uh, part of my research was doing interview uh, studies and most of the women that I interviewed, they preferred the classroom. They, what kept them in the field was their relationships with students and working closely with students and they did not want to be removed from the students. And so they wanted to stay in the classroom. Um, but the end result was that men were making all the decisions for how the classroom should operate. Um, men tend to go into administration roles partly too because of the need for higher pay, um, because they are still expected oftentimes to support their families um, and they can't do it on a teaching salary and so they have to go into administrative roles. Um, but still, it, it creates this really interesting power dynamic where it is this male-dominated leadership in the profession. Um, there's also some interesting things going on with the pay because of those early ideas of teaching as being um, a missionary, a calling um, mindset that you're doing it out of duty to country and duty to God. Um, people still see it as 
Well, people don't do it for the money. They do it because they want to make a difference. They do it um, because they love children. Um, there's all these ancillary benefits. So they don't really need the money because the job is so rewarding in and of itself, um, which is actually true. I mean, that's part, you know, why I never complained about it because I actually loved my job and it was never boring and it was always meaningful. Um, but the end result is really disempowering for the people who are in the, pro in the profession and depending on it for their livelihood. Um, I also found it interesting in my research personally, um, just the, the ongoing silencing of teachers. Um, so feminist research talks about how women, um, when they don't feel heard, they begin to self-silence. Um, like why bother talk if nobody's listening? And uh, many of the teachers I talked to, I asked them a lot about, um, you know, when you disagree with policy, do you speak up about it? Who do you talk to? Um, and do you get involved with policy making? And a lot of them were like, you know, I don't feel like anyone's really listening, even if I tried. So I just don't bother. There is also some fear. There's definitely fear of losing a job that they love. Um, but they really just felt like no one was listening. And when I asked them, you know, like, what is the one thing that you would say to policymakers if you could talk to them today? They would say that they should listen to teachers. But ironically, they didn't have any interest in trying to talk to policymakers because they didn't feel like they were ever really heard. Um, and then there was also something that kind of um, surfaced in the research. I put, I placed all the teachers based on their responses on this continuum from being externally directed to transformative in their teaching. And on one end of that spectrum, they're, you know, following the rules, doing whatever they're told to do. And on the other end, they're, they have a great deal of kind of agency and autonomy in their work. There's an attention to identities and um, social activism in their work. And um, these teachers were all award-winning teachers. So they definitely clustered um, towards the transformative end. But some of the most transformative teachers were the white males um, that were that were underrepresented in the study. There were only three of them, but they were all pushing that envelope of just you know, doing whatever they wanted in their classrooms. And I thought it was, you know, the sample size was too small to, to draw very many conclusions, but, but I definitely raised questions about the extent to which they feel more freedom to do what they want in their classroom um, and to what extent um, they are given more freedom to do what they want in their classrooms. Um, so the, it, it's, there's still a whole lot going on in the profession that can be traced back to this feminization of the profession. One thing that I think, um, and I never, I never thought about it until we were preparing for this podcast. But one thing that I, I think, one way the feminization of the profession perhaps has impacted me as a college teacher is that um, I have noticed over time that my, um, my, my, because I usually I teach freshman composition now exclusively, um, but always it's been freshman comp heavy. But my students tend to expect me to be nurturing right, to be helpful. Um, and I wonder how much my students have, you know, absorbed s stereotypes about, you know, what type of woman teaches, or, you know, those kind of missionary or mothering ideas, you know, if they've absorbed those from the culture, and that's why they have it, those expectations of me. Or I also wonder if maybe they had teachers in high school who were like that. And if any of those teachers were putting on that more helpful nurturing attitude, because they were expected to, you know, because of the because of all those ideas about teaching as a calling and, you know, um, and nurturing and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's always really kind of funny and slash sad. Um, and I don't see it now because I teach online. But when I was teaching on campus, um, my students would always seem to like me a whole lot right up until they got um, their first papers back and would see their grades. And because they would see me, a young female teacher, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty bubbly person and, you know, very friendly in person. And they would always then interpret that as sweet, kind, nurturing. She's going to be great. This is going to be a piece of cake. And then they would get the papers back and realize, oh, no, um, Dr. Krebs is rigorous. 
and this grating, this is a terrible idea. And then the honeymoon would end and you could see it in their faces. And I always wondered what that was about, but I, maybe part of it is because they look at me and all those stereotypes kick in that they've absorbed about the feminization of the profession and, and what teachers are like or what they should be like. I just, it's interesting. I was kind of feeling that um, as a possible cause <laughs> for that, for that attitude. Um, and that kind of, just to move then now into our discussion time, um, have you, have you ever seen, um, you know, some of these things about feminization of the profession or stereotypes or any of that stuff? How has that played out in your lives or how, how has that caused you to experience sexism in the classroom? Either one of you. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, so like I said, I started teaching a year after I graduated college. So I was pretty young and, um, I was at a small Christian school, so it was a close community and there were only two third grade classes and um, pretty small classes and everything. And um, it was well known and openly discussed from the beginning in my school that the male teachers were paid more than the female teachers because, of course, they were the, the breadwinners of the family. Um, so they they had to, had to be. It, it was an oh, open wow. discussion. Yeah. And it was not until years after I stopped teaching that I realized that that is illegal um, and that that is, um, you know, of course, not ethical either. And um, but it was it was a given that, oh, well, you know, they've, they the men, they, they have to you know, we all have husbands that are working. So we don't you know, but there were there were women who were teaching there who could not afford to send their children to that school because of how expensive it was and how little we were paid. And we were paid far less than even public school teachers because it was such a small school um but it was considered all right because you know we weren't really making money it was just kind of on the side you know um and uh and I also remember and this is just a couple of instances but I also remember um a conversation at lunch with um a couple of my friends who were fellow teachers and uh the headmaster of the school who was there um who looked at us and said and it was a man, he said, uh, now y'all don't get pregnant right now because we don't have the money for subs. And at the time, you know, we were like, no, we're not, we're not, you know, okay. but then later, wow. I also illegal. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was just things like that, that like, I didn't know that that was wrong. I, it was just so much ingrained in the culture. And, you know, I don't know, I was young and kind of oblivious to laws um as far as things like that go and I wish that somebody in my college classes had told us you know these are your rights as teachers and you know these are your rights as female teachers especially you know these are problems that some female teachers have if this happens this is what you should do about it um but yeah those are just a couple of the uh the things that I when you were talking that I was like oh yeah no I I recognize that and the the whole thing of teaching as a mission boy that goes double in a Christian school um, you are you are considered you know on the mission field, and it is it would be ungrateful of you to say anything about the pay or you know about trying to negotiate for a higher pay. That was not an option um, because you know you you are uh, in the ministry, and it is often couched in those terms. Um, and so you are expected to be doing this you know as a as a ministry that you know you're expected to to take whatever's offered and be be not only like okay with it but be grateful for the opportunity to you know minister there and 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 I have to say like as a disclaimer like I loved my time teaching there like I really did uh you know I don't want it to sound like I was you know some kind of bond servant or anything I I adored my classroom I love teaching in any capacity so so you know I enjoyed it very much but there are definitely things that I look back and wish that I had known more uh so that I could have spoken into that a little bit more Wow, so I could definitely relate to um, that idea of being ungrateful. Um, if you ask for higher pay, that's even true in the public schools. Um, I think any time that teachers go on strike, um, it's really seen as um, being uncaring about the children and about society. And um, a lot of times uh, it's just really perceived negatively if teachers are asking for more money. Um, and I think one of the things that was really effective by, about some of the more recent strikes is that they really focused on what was best for students. And they said, you know, that they weren't just striking for better pay, but they were they were striking for better resources for their schools and for their students and class sizes and things like that. Um, 
But it, yeah, you're not allowed to ask for more pay that's somehow perceived very negatively by the public. I think it's interesting too because I, I, I think it would do people in public who are watching these strikes and having you know certain thoughts or opinions about them would do well to to maybe connect that to a different discourse because I think that people seem very willing to get on board with the idea that for moms to mother their children well, those moms need to practice self-care and take care of themselves, right? That to, to, to adequately take care of someone else or to adequately do that job of mothering, you need to not work yourself to the bone. But for whatever reason, it's like people don't think to extend that to teaching. But I think that's also true of teaching. And that's why I think it's really unfair when people get mad about teachers asking for more money is because if teachers can be paid fairly and lose some of that economic insecurity, then that then helps those teachers to feel more confident in the classroom, more secure. That trickles to the students because the teachers are able to be better teachers because they're not worrying about going to their second job after they teach all day because they have to to be able to pay the mortgage just stuff like that yeah I think I think that 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 you know I mean I think that's one connection between teaching and parenting that I would like to see sometimes I think that's bad I think that teachers are expected and some of the readings that we read reference this but teachers are expected to be basically parents to the children and I don't think that's fair um, because I don't think that that's, that expectation is, is fair. But, um, and that is one connection between teaching and parenting that I would like to see is for people to realize that in both cases, you know, you have to be able to feel secure in yourself to do a good job at the job. Um, and I haven't, I haven't had quite the same experiences, um, as either of you, but in part because I've always been in the college realm, um, and that has its own issues, (laughs) right? Um, and as far as, you know, pay goes generally in our kind of in, the, in our higher ed world if there's going to be any negotiation it tends to happen when a person is offered a job but nowadays there are so many people applying for every job at least in English that people don't tend to negotiate that much I don't think because they're so scared they won't get the job and so there is still there is in, in, in th- that world there's also a lot of you should be grateful that you were even, that you even got a job. There's might be guilt, you know, thinking about, oh, I don't make enough money. Um, And one thing that we have the chance to do, which, you know, um, elementary school, middle school, or high school teachers probably don't have, I mean, maybe they do, I'm not sure, I don't know as much about that world, is as college teachers, sometimes if we want extra money, we can choose to teach an extra class, right? Like, I mean, I'm an adjunct, so I'm paid by the class anyway. My husband is salaried, but if he wants to, he can choose to take on summer classes or like, you know, a January term class. And I think that's another reason that um, like low college professor salaries are justified by administrators is because they can say, well, you can always take extra classes. And that's true. But if you take too many extra classes, you burn out and all the same stuff happens as if, you know, if you're a teacher in an elementary school and you, you know, you don't have nearly enough salary to make ends meet or whatever. Um, I would say that, you know, most of the the stuff that's happened, most of the sexism I've experienced in, in my teaching career and at the college level has almost all come from my students. I can't think of any cases where it's kind of come from above from administrators. Um, generally speaking, I've, you know, I felt felt pretty blessed to that I've, you know, and it could just be the administrator, administrators I've worked for, though. Maybe I've just been lucky. But um, I've tended to be treated the same as my um, as my colleagues. <laughs> the one case I can think of of when someone who was not a student made me feel like, um, like I was, you know, um, like I was being treated differently is because I, because I was a woman is one time when I was still teaching on campus as an adjunct, I was on campus and I went to visit my friend Emily who teaches um, with David in the English department at HBU. She's full time, but um, we don't see each other a lot. And we were talking to each other. In this case, we were not talking about class. We were talking about babies because she had had her first baby and she was asking me some questions and I was like telling her, you know, some stuff that worked for our baby. We were talking about family. Okay, maybe woman things, whatever. Well, a, a male teacher who's a friend, I mean, he's, you know, he's not an enemy of mine. Um, you know, he's, I would see him around campus. I've always thought he was a nice guy. He sticks his head in the, the window, in the door and says something like, oh yeah, you're just in here talking about babies. And I got so <laughs> upset because one, this guy has four children. Okay, he's not anti-child. He is himself a parent. I see him in the hall talking all the time to male professors. So it's not even like he could be like, oh, you're, you're, you're talking instead of working. 
No, he just stuck his head in to make fun of us for talking about babies because we're women. Like, and that was like, you know, um, I was mad at him for a long time. I'm okay with him now, but, um, you know, but usually it's my students though. And uh, honestly, the biggest thing that I see is, and I don't know if it's because of feminization of the profession, I don't know what it is, but my students tend to automatically not give me respect, right? I have tend to have to earn respect in their eyes. Whereas, and I know because we talked about it a lot, David automatically gets respect. And I, I don't have a know question about that, Katie. Okay. Is it is it mainly your male students or is it across the board male and female students? Um, I would say across the board. Interesting. Um, yes. Yeah. It's not my, my female students a lot of times like me, like personally, but um, it's across the board with my students where it's male and female students who expect me to give them a break. Um, they are much more likely to be chattery in class. Um and I don't, and part, it might not just be because David's male. Some of it might be because he has like the beard of gravitas, right? He's got this big bushy beard <laughs> with gray hairs in it and he has his spectacles and, you know, maybe they feel like, oh, he looks more professory. But, um, and the biggest way it plays out honestly is in classroom management because he, he is very relaxed with his students and he, but that's because he can be like, he can be very relaxed in the classroom and they still give him respect. Whereas throughout my teaching career, I've had to very, you know, carefully maintain my classroom rules to be able to keep control. And, and it's not always like on the verge of chaos or anything, but it's, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm always having to rein them in because they're out of control, but it's like, I can't relax. I can't relax the way that he can and, mm-hmm. and, you know, get more personal with my students. And not that I, I mean, I do tell them personal things about myself, but you know what I, something I do that I don't think he's ever had to do is I have to take every opportunity with my college students to refer back to my credentials to make sure they know that I'm not, you know, that, to make sure they know I'm qualified. Right. So any chance I can get to say something like, Oh, you think four pages is a lot. Well, my dissertation was 320. So, you know, <laughs> That's amazing. like, I mean, and not to make them yeah. feel horrible, but basically just to remind them, hey, this is why I'm here. Like, you know, and I told a friend of mine the other day who's been, st- I've been mentoring a, a first year teacher this year. She's, um, she started teaching um, at the college level and she has a master's degree, but her master's program was not focused on learning how to teach. She was in a, a program that was all kind of content based uh, in, in the humanities. So she didn't have any training on how to teach. And then she got thrown into the college classroom and she's about 24 and she's had a rough year and, and I've been trying to help her, but I told her the other day to, to do that. I said, this is what you have to do. You have to make sure they know that you are qualified or they're going to try to walk over you because you're a young woman. And I hate that I have to say that, but I have to say that because they will. And so it's just, it's frustrating. And that, that's kind of where it's come through for me. And I don't know, you know, um, David says sometimes that he wonders if his students grant him more respect in part because they've had fewer male teachers. So it's more of a novelty. I know and, that's true in the elementary, for sure. Okay. Like the elementary male teachers are a novelty and the kids are like, <gasps> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that could be part of it. And again, a lot of times it's not it's not outright hostility from my students. A lot of times it's more reminding them, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm Dr. Grubbs. Or like, um, you know, every now and then one of them will say something like, like they'll call you, what is it? It's, it's like what, what, it's like what little children call preschool teachers. Like my, 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 my woman I've been mentoring, um, she said the other day one of her students called her Miss Marilyn. She's like, no, (laughs) like that's not okay. That's, you know, I, you're not three. Um, you know, it's just, just stuff like that. But, um, I had kind of, but I, yeah, anyway, I was having to urge her to basically make the, you know, to say, cause she has had some outright disrespectful students this semester. And I said, you kind of just have to say, I didn't go through all the work to get a master's degree to deal with this. So you're going to need to just go, you know, but just to remind them that I'm not here because I like you particularly, <laughs> right? Like I'm not here cause I'm a missionary. I'm mm-hmm. here because I'm qualified and I enjoy the work, but I'm not enjoying it right now because of the way that you're behaving, you know? So just, just stuff like that. And you know, that's, I'm sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. I, all that stuff has been dredged up for me again. I haven't had those experiences nearly as much as the longer I've been teaching. Cause I've gotten more confident in myself, but I've been reliving it all with her because she's a first year teacher. 
right? And she's very young. She doesn't look much older than her students. And so she's getting all of it. Everything they can do to be disrespectful, she's getting all of it this year. So it's been kind of tough. But um, I've been talking for a long time. So I wanted to ask, do, do either of you have a question that you would like to ask the group um, well, that we can all respond to? I do want to jump in really quickly just to share, you know, because I did move into the college setting. And um, I, I, what it did for me was realize how oppressive the high school teaching was like it, it had been so normalized similar to what Ilea was saying earlier for me that it that I didn't question um, and because I loved my work so much that I didn't feel the need to complain about the the working conditions but now that I'm at the college level um, it's so true as far as like the people above and my colleagues um, it's so much more autonomy and trust and um, respect for family. Uh, my department is very, very clear that your family comes first. You you have a sick kid, you work from home. You have kids off for the day, you need to bring them to work, that's fine. Um, you know, like there's just so much support for me as a mom and um, it, that in my department, which, you know, as a as a teacher, you felt constantly guilty if you stayed home with a sick kid or um, mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't leave. You couldn't, you know, during your planning time, during your, um, you know, when you're not teaching, like you had to be in the building. Like it was just so structured, the lack of autonomy, the lack of respect for our, our expertise. Um, I never... I did, the idea of negotiating for my salary was like something I'm, I have no interest in business. Like that's not something I want to do. So I loved that they just had set salary for high school teaching. Um, but I never like questioned the idea of how disempowering that was for us to, to not be able to negotiate our salary. And that the fact that I was paid the same amount as a teacher who wasn't investing as much time. Um, in her work. Uh, so yeah. And, and for me too, it's only come from the students, like the students, um, the way I see it is, um, I'll get emails questioning my grading a lot, or, um, is there, what can I do, you know, after I've turned in five assignments late, is there anything I can do to get my grade up to an A? And you're like, what? Yep. What? Yeah, every How semester. And like, and I'm like, and I, and I have questions, like, are they doing this with, would they have done this with a male professor? You know, like, what is it about me that thinks that this is an appropriate question? Um, but then they, the other thing I've had some, um, mansplaining emails too. Like, um, I had a student email me to explain to me, um, how I should go about my grading. And I was like, you, you realize I'm teaching about pedagogy what? and that I oh might my gosh. have a reason for the why, reason why I graded it that way. I just forwarded it to my boss and I was like, I'm sending this to you because I can't, can't respond to it right now. And she emailed back and she was like, don't respond, don't respond <laughs> because she knew there was no way I could respond appropriately. Um, and, you know, it was so interesting, too, because with this particular student, you know, we raised concerns at one of our group meetings because we, we talk a lot, you know, as we were deciding where to place our, our interns and things for student teaching. And the male professors who had taught him had had a no problems with him. But at one point, this particular student was talking to me and another professor came in to rescue me um, because, you know, just to say, hey, I need you for something to, because she she was so upset about how he was speaking to me. Um, so we, we had to work with him because he was going into a female dominated work environment and we knew it wasn't going to fly. And so we had to put it into an action plan for him to, to think about his tone and what he was saying. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, it's great that there was a, a plan for that, you know, but it's sad that that has to be how it goes, you know. Um, what other, what other questions, do you guys have any questions you want to pose or um, anything? Do we want to go in any different directions based on what we've already said? I was just going to bring up that I really liked, um, the one of the articles talked about the intersectional approach of the educational kind of history, the history of education. Um, the idea that, you know, there were, it, it wasn't a uniform growth 
from you know the beginning of this one arc narrative towards you know equal pay or towards whatever that there were these different socioeconomic issues that were kind of um, conflicted there were differences in the way that um, like the the white feminists and the black feminists interacted with this issue and and the things that they were kind of um, seeing teaching as a tool for were different even within their you know, the same time period, but different communities um, and uh, even uh, different political parties. And I, I just think it's really interesting. And we still have that today. But um, to bring up that, you know, this is not just um, uh, one one set of issues and it's definitely not the same set of issues for each um, kind of subgroup of teachers or, you know, for, for different demographics of teachers and um, kind of recognize the the unique struggles that different uh, demographics might, might deal with in this area. Yeah. Other thing that I wanted to mention, too, is just the kind of indirect repercussions of the lack of prestige in the profession. Um, the The thing that we're running into now a lot in the work that we're doing is recruiting issues. There has recently been this massive drop-off in people enrolling in teacher education programs, and based on the way the media portrays the field, this is no huge surprise. But, um, I mean, almost a 50% drop in enrollment, and which this should be of great concern to people across the board. But um, the lack of prestige in the profession has also affected just overall representation in teaching, that it is um, very white and so students aren't seeing people that look like them and teaching in the classroom and um, you know so we're trying to recruit um, more students of color into the profession um, because we think it's really important for students to to see people like them teaching and and not just for the students of color but also for white students to have to learn from people from different um, backgrounds. And, you know, we're talking to students about why they're cho not choosing to go into the to the profession. And a lot of it has to do with the negative coverage in the media. Their parents don't want them to go into the profession. Um, a lot of them, if you are a first generation college student or you have student loans, then you don't see it as being lucrative enough, lucrative enough to make ends meet. Um, so it's really, it, I think it's going to become a crisis for our society. Like if we want to bring the best and the brightest into the profession, if we want to have good schools, then we need to um, respect teachers through compensation, through um, respecting the profession um, better than we're doing. I think it's, I think there's going to be, um, there already are negative impacts for students, but I think it's going to increase based on what we're seeing and the trouble we're having with recruiting. Just to piggyback off of that, man, when you said that, it just brought back a memory. When I was in high school, um, my guidance counselor told me I was too smart to be a teacher and she didn't know why I was pursuing that with the grades that I had. I should choose something else. And I have wanted to be a teacher since first yeah. grade. Like, it's all I ever wanted to be. But she said, you know, look, at I was in all the honors classes and AP classes and everything. And she's like, you are overqualified. You're too smart to be a teacher. And I was like, I'm sorry. That's what I want to be. And it actually ended up being really cool because I ended up getting um, a, a large portion of my tuition paid for by a scholarship specifically for education students. And to me, that was just confirmation that I was exactly where I was supposed to be doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. But that um, that was definitely a shock, especially coming from an actual educator um, that was this a, is a huge battle. Like, yeah, we, I mean, a huge battle that we are facing is dealing with school counselors who are saying that. But I also had the same thing said to me um, by one of my college professors when I was applying for grad school to get my MAT, um, who wrote in the letter of recommendation, this student should not be going into teaching. <laughs> she should be wow. doing um, yeah. PhD. And um and that was that was just really interesting. And I had a student too who once asked me what my GPA was in high school, and I told him it was like a four point two five. And he was like, "Why are you a teacher?" And I was like, "Why wouldn't you want smart teachers?" Like, this is right? So <laughs> yeah, that seems like a no brainer to me. That I mean, that you would. And the the crazy thing is, all those same people probably complain about the ratings of their local school, and like yes, get absolutely. upset. Absolutely. I mean. It, like it's it's super frustrating, you know, to to hear that because 
you know, and I think, and some of that too, I was talking about this with my husband earlier because I was telling him what we were going to talk about tonight, but I, I think some of it, like you said, um, Kim, is about pay and people are worried that they can't pay back their student loans. I also think some of that stuff is also class related. I think a lot of, you know, kind of lower middle class or yeah. middle class parents really want their kids to like become lawyers or doctors or like whatever, you know, cause they want them to like mm-hmm. quote, have a better life than they did or whatever. And so they're wanting them to try to pursue like high paying jobs or jobs with super, super high prestige. And, and so, yeah, we're discouraging them from pursuing teaching and it's, it's, it's frustrating. Like, because, you know, I don't know, my kids are in our local public school, which I will say, Kim, when you were talking about the kind of just general whiteness of the profession, it makes me really grateful for our local school because my and a part of it is because of where we live. I mean, Fort Bend County is the most diverse county in the nation in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, and that's very much apparent in my kids' local school. But, and it's also true of a lot of the teachers in their school too. So I, I really appreciate that my um, my daughter is seeing teachers of all races at her school. And um, I, we feel blessed to be there. But um, it's especially having seen just how wonderful her teachers have been this year. And my son's teacher, he's in, he's in public preschool because... Um, because he has autism. So there's public preschool for children with disabilities, listeners, if you didn't know that. And so he's in public school already, even though he's just, he turned four in November. But seeing the amazing job that they do and how much a difference they've made for my kids makes it even more frustrating to hear people denigrate the profession, to hear people talk about it as if it's not a worthwhile calling um, or even just a job. And that's the thing too is, you know, um, it's very strange that that a lot of times in the kind of the public eye or when people talk about teachers at the same time they'll expect every teacher that goes into teaching to be after it because it's a calling almost like a missionary thing but at the same time then you know when young students want to do that high school students want to pursue it to go no no you don't want to do that you want to do something with more money you want to do something that's more impressive right yeah which is it like i mean is it about should it be about the money or should it be about a calling and i mean you know it's just it's it's this really weird cognitive dissonance in the way that people talk about the profession that's very very frustrating okay well let's we're, we've gone a little long so there let's do one more quick does anybody else have anything they want to say before we do passing on no i'm good i'm good all right. Well, we're going to go listeners now to our, our usual last segment, which is passing on. And that's where we, you know, let you know something else that might be worthwhile to watch or read or listen to. So um, tonight, when, Kim, why don't you go first? Yeah. So I, I do want to go ahead and mention um, two of the texts that uh, I used a lot in my dissertation research uh, and that informed a lot of what I talked about today. The first is The Teacher Wars by Dana Goldstein. And the second is an old uh, sociological study of teaching from the 1970s. It's called School Teacher by Dan Lorty. Uh, I would recommend those to anybody who's interested in uh, learning more about the history of teaching, particularly in the teaching wars. There's a, the teacher wars. There's an, uh, another chapter that's fascinating about um what happened after Brown versus Board of Education when all of the teachers at the uh, segregated schools, the black teachers were pretty much fired, even though they were typically had higher levels of education than the white teachers um, because the white parents didn't want their children to have uh, teachers of color. And so, um, which has led to part of the problem we're having today with recruiting um, and increasing representation in the field. The other thing that I just have to share, like just for fun, that's not related to the topic, um, because I want it to be a topic in the future, but I need more of you guys to watch it first, is um, a really random Korean show that my husband found on Netflix because he's got a current fascination with all things Korean. And it's called Strong Girl Bong Soon. And it's a Korean superhero. Uh, she's got she's got super strength, and um, it really gets into some interesting things. Like if she doesn't use it for good, like if she uses it in selfish ways, she'll lose her power. But she ends up doing um, really addressing a lot of the treatment of women in Korea, which apparently is really terrible the way they're treated. Um, and, and so um, she just really gets on this kick about people are taking advantage of the week and it's my responsibility to stop them. And um, I think it could be a fun future episode. So some of you need to watch it. You'll have to put it on the schedule for next year. 
to give uh, give us time to get caught up. Uh, Leah, what about you? What are you recommending tonight? Um, I have two. I have a blog post. Um, the blog is called Crumudgication, which is fantastic. Um, but the, the specific post that I'm referencing is called There Is No Teacher Shortage. And it really speaks to a lot of the things that we've been talking about that, you know, the press talks a lot about that there is a teacher shortage and there's not enough teachers. But there are plenty of teachers available. But we have created such a hostile and toxic work environment in a lot of these schools that it is they call it a, um, an open-ended uh, strike where teachers are walking out one at a time. I'm talking about how we can't retain teachers in the, the public schools, especially because um, it's not a, a tenable work environment um, that we've underfunded them. We've under, you know, aided them and all these things. So it's it's a really powerful piece. It's not long, but um, it is a very powerful piece about um, how even just the language around how we talk about this issue affects our perception of the issue. Um, and then my second recommendation is it's actually a book. Um, called Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue um, by Christia Spears Brown. And it is not a teaching book per se, but one of the things that I said earlier was that I did not know what I did not know and that I think it's really important to um, teach children and, and as they become young adults um, to recognize uh, gender stereotypes, gender disparities um, when, when they see them. And to be raised to be more aware of that. And um, this is one of the best books on kind of getting beyond the typical stereotypes. And it talks about, you know, children birth through middle school. So it's a, a wide swath. Um, but even as a teacher, this book, I read it before I had kids. Um, this book was helpful to me as a teacher to um, kind of look past, look at some of the gender stereotypes that I took for granted in my classroom. Um, things like, well, boys are more active, so you just got to, you know, let them have a little more wiggle room. The girls, you know, you can expect them to, you know, things like that, that that's kind of the common knowledge um, and how that's actually very sexist and, and how that's not fair to either gender, really. And um, so even though it says parenting, it really is just kind of, you know, dealing with children in general beyond pink and blue. And uh, it's I highly recommend it as a really good resource. Thanks so much. Um, what I'm recommending tonight is um, a recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education from March 27th of this year. And it's by uh, Herb Childress and it's called, This is How You Kill a Profession. And the subtitle is, How Did We Decide That Professors Don't Deserve Job Security or Decent Salary? And it's a pretty long article, but it's really, really interesting. And he's reflecting on lots of different issues with the college teaching environment through his own kind of biography and history with teaching. So it, it is, you know, from a, a kind of personal standpoint, but he touches on so many things that, um, so many problems, I think, in our college teaching environment um, that relate to some of the stuff we've talked about tonight. Um, you know, ideas like you should just be grateful to have a job. Ideas like um, it's really more of a calling and, you know, we're called to be scholars in this ivory tower and that's the dream and what happens when you don't get the dream. Um, and, you know, things like pay, job security, um, and the adjunctification of the profession. Um, so it, it was a really interesting read. And I, I thought that it um, really encapsulated the kind of current mood around a lot of issues in, uh, in college teaching that are related to sexism, but not just exclusively about sexism. So um, our listeners might find that interesting as well. Um, well, thank you so much, listeners, uh, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. You know that we love to hear from you. So if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to connect with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. Um, you can also connect with us on our Facebook page anytime you want, and we always post new episodes on that Facebook page. So you can, um, if you keep your eyes on that, you'll see every time we post anything. Um, Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison. Um, for Kim Feldman and Aliyah Grubbs, I'm Katie Grubbs. And um, listeners, be sure to tune in in mid-June. We're shifting to our summer schedule now, so um, a month from now. Tune in in mid-June for an episode on writing strong girls in YA fiction. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things, love.